Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. Welcome to part two of The Resilient Surgeon with Dr. Sachin Panda, a leading expert in the field of circadian rhythm research and professor at the Salk Institute for Biologic Studies about his research into time-restricted eating. In part one of this series, we talked about the history and science behind this widely popular strategy. Today, Dr. Panda and I discussed putting the eating method into practice. Welcome back, Dr. Panda. So, you know, at, at this point, you, it, in your fabulous book called The Circadian Code, which I highly recommend to everybody, it's so well written, uh, it's so accessible, uh, and it's full of great stories. And one of the great stories is a story about somebody, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Piet, Piet? Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought that story was so wonderful uh, for highlighting, now that we understand kind of the general structure of the circadian world in our bodies, this just really, I thought, highlighted the perils of ignoring it and what happens when you ignore it. Would you mind uh, you know, sharing that with us? Yes, there are many uh, stories, and since then there are many other stories. Because <laughs> whatever, I'll people, tell you, whatever story you want, you just tell us because you. When know people read about the uh, the uh, some of the stories, they come back and say, "Hey, I I also yeah. saw this," yeah. and um, you know there are. Um, so one idea of uh, maintaining the optimum circadian rhythm is actually. Um, or five very simple ideas or principles that are based on scientific findings. And uh, one of them, so let's go through the five or six uh, daily habits that one can use. And of Good. course, your Good. listeners are all surgeons, they are physicians, they're doing, they're forced to do shift work. So, <laughs> right, right. But at least they can, they can. Uh, help their patients who are not shift workers, or they can also have their own family members and friends uh, who are not shift workers. Uh, so the one simple idea is your day actually starts when you went to bed the previous night, because when you go to bed determines what how long you'll sleep and what time you wake up. So the rule number one is go to bed at a consistent time and stay in bed for at least eight hours. Mm -hmm. Because if you stay in bed for eight hours, hopefully you can catch six and a half to seven and a half hours of sleep. Because many studies on millions of people have shown that people who sleep between six and a half to seven and a half hours have the least amount of disease burden and also they're more likely to live longer. Um, and during this sleep, our circadian clock does many things. One is many hormones that are involved in repair and rejuvenation. For example, growth hormone that mm -hmm. spikes in our sleep and uh, many uh, unwanted materials from our brain. Those are also 
drained out through what we now know by the glymphatic system. And also neurons improve the connections with each other and between different parts of the brain. So this is really important for brain health. Really and, important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we cannot really important. ignore it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the simplest thing, uh, healthy habit to do because you don't mm -hmm. have to do anything. Lie in bed, switch up the light, <laughs> and don't get out of the bed for eight hours. You don't switch have to switch up the light a little bit before bed, bed, though, right? Switch it off before bed sometime. Yeah. Yeah, a little while before bed. Yeah. So that's um, number one. And number two is after waking up, give yourself at least one to two hours before your first meal. The reason is that's the time when our morning or our night hormone melatonin is slowly going down and our day hormone cortisol alertness hormone is spiking because the maximum level of cortisol in our body actually reaches, uh, is achieved within one hour after waking up. And we know both melatonin and cortisol are not good for controlling our blood glucose level. So that's why. It's better to avoid food that time. Mm -hmm. And morning time is also a good time to go outdoor and get some light uh, because that morning light is very effective in synchronizing a master circadian clock in the SCN to the day-night cycle. So that's the time if you are pressed for time, this is the time to go outdoor. Um, if you're picking up your newspaper on the front porch, of course, these days not many people do that or to go check yeah. your garden or take your dog for a walk. Uh, even 10 to 15 minutes of that morning ritual is very important. Yeah. So that's number two. And then number three is um, start your breakfast at a consistent time um, because just like when you get a jet lag, it's uh, you're actually sleeping at a different time. So similarly, when we eat, surprisingly, is the biggest time queue for most of our body clock. And when we change our timing of breakfast from one day to another day, then our body thinks like it's in a different time zone. So it's almost like what I call metabolic jet lag, and that disrupts our circadian rhythm. So that's why I have breakfast at a consistent time every day. Um, and then after eating your breakfast, uh, count eight, nine, 10, or maximum 12 hours to eat all your food. So, which is now popularly known as intermittent fasting, but the scientific term is time restricted eating. So, you can choose eight, nine, 10, or maximum 12 hours, not more than that. And your last meal should be at least two to three hours before your habitual bedtime because eating um, causes thermogenesis that changes our core body temperature. And when our core body temperature is high, it's very difficult to fall asleep. And second is if we eat very close to our bedtime, then there is enough melatonin that is preparing our body to sleep. And melatonin actually inhibits the production of insulin from pancreas. Mm -hmm. So that means eating very close to bedtime, um, melatonin can interfere with our normal glucoregulatory system, so uh, blood glucose level can remain high for a very long period of time after a meal. 
So that's number three. And then the fourth one is um, if you are pressed for time and cannot exercise, uh, and if you have limited time, then the afternoon is the best time to uh, go outdoor and exercise. And again, uh, daytime exposure to bright light, particularly outdoor bright light, seems to enhance the nighttime melatonin production. And we don't mm -hmm. know why or how. Mm. Uh, so that's why afternoon exercise is best because that's when uh, our muscle and our body is warm enough. So you don't need too much warm up. And second, our, our joints, ligaments, and tendons are also more flexible. So there is less mm -hmm. risk for injury. And then more importantly, people who have hypertension or have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, uh, late afternoon, early evening exercise uh, seems to better control blood glucose and blood pressure than the same exercise in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, but I must say that any exercise, any time is much better. Any than time, exercise. Any, yes, do it whenever. Don't get Just do it. But, afternoon thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, those are crucial elements of the program of yeah. what I what you call the circadian lifestyle, right? The circadian lifestyle. And then, yeah. as you mentioned, two to three hours before bedtime, we should also dim down our light so that yeah. we can boost melatonin production and people can uh, go to a good night of sleep. So the thing is, um, you know, when we work, a lot of us who are doing a day shift work, uh, regular work, we tend to get up in the morning and we do this and we don't pay attention to a lot of this stuff. Um, so uh, there is one example where somebody who was working lifelong as a, um, what do we call morning worker because he used to get up early in the morning and then had to go and um, deliver milk um, this to is Pia. different people. Pia. Yeah, this is Pia. Yeah, Pia. This is such a good story. I'm so glad you're telling <laughs> he was doing, Who did it for <laughs> most of his life. And then uh, he was looking forward to his retirement days because he thought that after retirement he could enjoy life, he'll be happy, healthy. So he retired from his job and um, he wanted to enjoy. So the definition of enjoyment, unfortunately, in our modern mm -hmm. life is get up in the morning and then sit in front of the TV and watch your favorite show in a snacks. mostly dark room because we don't mm -hmm. even pay any effort to go and open the curtains or open the yeah. windows. Mm -hmm. So he started doing that and he would, um, sometimes he would even, there is no reason to actually get up in the morning because he didn't have to work. So he would even get up very late in the morning, eight, nine, or sometimes even 10 o'clock and would watch TV and would not get out of the house until noon. And slowly after a few months, he realized that he's actually uh, clinically depressed. He, he was losing interest in life and he was, um, he didn't find anything exciting and uh, he was getting more and more depressed. And uh, then um, he, it became too serious that he had to actually go and see a, a psychiatrist. And then um, when the psychiatrist kind of reviewed his lifestyle, he uh, suggested maybe there was a big change in lifestyle from working life to retired life. And this lack of morning light, uh, the lack of morning exposure to outdoor light, uh, daylight was the reason. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so one thing that this guy adopted, or actually his, uh, his family members, his daughter actually adopted was to 
make sure that uh, he wakes up early in the morning and then all of his curtains were open so daylight could come in because this melanopsin that is so important when train our brain clock to the outside world is not that sensitive to light. So that means if you have your curtains closed, you may get up and you can find your way around in your room and you can even read the newspaper and watch TV, but that's not enough to fully activate melanopsin. It needs somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 lux of light. And that means if you're sitting next to a large window and eating your breakfast, you are getting enough light, nearly 1,000 lux of light, to entrain your circadian rhythm and also increase alertness. And an office light for references, uh, for comparison? Office light, you know, these days the office lights, depending on how you're sitting, um, Sometimes the bright LED lights can give you up to 1,000 lux of light. Um, but in most cases, means, for example, in my office, <laughs> I get 200 to 400 lux of light because too much light, we don't actually prefer too much light in the office. So many people dim down their light. And uh, the best reference of what is 1,000 to 1,500 lux of light is if you walk into a drugstore, Walgreens or CVS pharmacy, or to a grocery store, or to Walmart <laughs> at mm -hmm. night. Mm -hmm. That's around 1,500 lux of light. Okay, that's a good reference point then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you can clearly see that your your houses, your offices are not brightly lit to that extent. So mm -hmm. this, is the, this is the story with Piet. And then very, very uh, within few days or weeks, he realized that the lack of light was driving this depression uh, in his life because uh, as soon as he got exposed to morning light and later on he developed a habit to go outdoor and take a morning walk, then the life completely, his uh, emotional state did a 180 degree and he became, again, uh, the happy <laughs> self. The happy Pierre. So, Pierre again. Happy yeah. Pierre, uh, like before. So that's one he, example. He was getting electroshock therapy. If I yeah, yeah. That. He was getting yeah. to so this is like very serious, serious condition. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I have also seen many, many of my um, loved ones also go through that. And uh, in many cases, light therapy does work. The thing is, some of the medications make them so lethargic and so uh, lack of energy that it it is a huge effort to drag yourself to get out yeah. and get that mm -hmm. light. So that's why um, we don't understand that the light is the best antidepressant. It's plentiful and free. We just have to step outside to get step it. Step outside, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, we are spending more than 92% of our time indoor. And uh, even that 10% of the time that we spend outdoor is not actually really outdoor because half of that is uh, in the nighttime. And then sometimes when you're outdoor, we may be sitting in the car driving the car, with, heavy, yeah, right. with heavy sunglasses that are cutting a lot of the light. Uh, so this is one extreme end of the example. The other example, which is clinically very significant, is the clinical study that was done in Mexico City um, by a physician who observed that many of the NICU, neonatal ICUs, are lit 24-7. And all the people think that the babies, particularly newborn babies or preterm babies, 
may not have circadian rhythm because they're sleeping and waking up around the clock, uh, but they do have circadian rhythm because, um, as I said, every cell in our body has circadian clock. And now we know that a normal circadian clock is also important for normal growth and development because many of the circadian mutant mice have some growth abnormality. Um, so he did this very simple experiment where he assumed that if we, what happens if you simulate day and night cycle in NICU? And of course, you cannot turn off the light in NICU because it's unsafe. Um, so he he just partially covered the crib of this. I was thinking, yeah, just partially uh, cover it. Yeah, and he measured the light level. It was around 300 lux of light. It's not super bright. It's just like a normal office room or normal hospital room during daytime from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And the light level at the eye level of this uh, preterm babies were around 24 to 25 lux from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Um, now, this is the without of, the cover or with the cover? That's with the cover. So the cover okay. was only partially covering the uh, half of the crib. And um, so he did this, and there are, I think, 60 or 70 uh, uh, preterm babies uh, randomized to two different arms, one with standard of care 24-7 light and one with this 12 hours light, 12 hours dark, dim light. And the results were astounding because uh, the preterm babies who experienced light-dark cycle, light-dim light cycle, they were they grew much faster than the control cohort so that they were released from hospital uh, on an average 13 days. The median um, 13 days. was 13 days, almost two weeks. So just imagine one day of NICU care itself is a few thousand dollars in the U.S. Yeah. And also there is so much of anxiety, uh, health issues. The, re the reason why they were released from the hospital was they grew normally yeah. and they yeah. attend the body weight that they're supposed to have. And I think that's the most profound effect of light dark cycle and circadian rhythm in healthcare. Because mm -hmm. in the US right now, roughly one in 10 uh, live birth is a preterm baby. One in 10, I didn't know that, One 10%. In 10. Yeah. 10%, yeah. so that means nearly 380,000 babies are born preterm. And just imagine if you can reduce the hospital stay even by 10 days, that's 3.8 million yeah. um, NICU days saved and several billion of dollars of uh, savings. And that's one end of the spectrum, but at the other end is also uh, ICU stay. And you know, 17 million people are admitted to hospital for sepsis. And uh, we know that the uh, outcome of sepsis is not very good. Nearly 20, 25% of sepsis patients will uh, die within 60 days after hospitalization. And then a significantly good number of people actually do not make it to one year. So then the question is whether this 24 seven lighting and 24 seven uh, disturbance to sleep wake cycle in ICU is contributing to at least few thousand lives lost. And if we can simulate circadian rhythm in care, patient care in ICUs, and even if we allow the ICU patients to sleep uninterrupted for six to seven, seven hours, 
I think there will be, we can increase, we can move the needle and have more patients actually come back to full functionality. So this is another area where uh, physicians can pay attention to um, patient care, at least for inpatient care in ICUs and also in regular hospital stay. I, I mean, I just, I had my shoulder replaced two months ago, almost to the day. And I remember I was particular. I've had both done in the first one. I was left alone at night and I, I just thought about this. They woke me up constantly uh, in my hospitalization. And my biggest problem wasn't pain. It was hard, but it was sleep. And I, it took me six weeks to get back to a normal sleep cycle after that. I, I don't know what role that played, but you know, yeah. it was a, a really huge problem. So I think it probably could even have an impact you know, outside yeah. of the ICU in a, in a subtle way. You know, uh, are you, uh, on a side note, are you okay on time here? I know we're kind of running along. Huh? Yeah, I have another 10 minutes, Max. <laughs> okay, well, we got to get, we, one thing we got to get through is this TRE and just the mechanics of that, you know, yeah, and how yeah. it works. Okay. Okay, as we getting to the end here, there's a really critical concept and a notion that I want everybody to understand. And that is that our liver, our muscles, our brain, all our organs, they go to sleep. They need sleep. They need rest, just like the brain does. And they need rest from the metabolic process, which is why uh, time-restricted eating appears to be so beneficial. And if you could just, one of the most extraordinary experiments you did was in the mice where you gave them a kind of a crummy diet over a certain longer period of time, and then a crummy diet in a time-restricted fashion, and the metabolic consequences of that. If you could just briefly tell us the upshot of that and then tell us what a good time-restricted eating process is for us and how that especially, how would you do that if you're a shift worker? You know, what's yeah. the right way to approach that process? Yeah, so this was uh, almost 11 years ago. So I, I said, this is a decade of time-restricted eating. Yeah. Uh, so it was a simple experiment where we took a group of mice divided them into two, randomly divided them into two groups. One group was allowed to eat this high-fat, high-sucrose uh, diet uh, where they got 60% of their calories from fat. Um, and they were given ad libitum so they could eat anytime they wanted. And then the second group was allowed to have the food only for eight hours. And fortunately, the second group, which was uh, eating for only eight hours, they could catch up, they eat the same number of calories as the first group. So in this way, we have two groups of mice eating the same number of calories from the same bad food. And mm -hmm. the only difference is in which time window they're eating. When? And when yeah. they're eating. When. Yeah. And after uh, 16 to 18 weeks, what we found was the first group that ate randomly whenever they wanted, they gained weight, they were obese, diabetic, high risk for cardiovascular disease, high risk for cancer. And this was known before because this is called diet-induced obesity model in rodents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This has been done 10,000 times. This experiment has been done. But the, the Surprising fact was the second group of mice that ate the same number of calories from the same high-fat diet, but they were healthy, they were um, they weighed less, the liver had no sign of steatosis, whereas the first group had massive um, steatosis. 
And then uh, this uh, second group of mice also had low inflammation throughout the body. And surprisingly, on a treadmill test, <laughs> exercise test, <laughs> they outrun mice that ate normal, healthy diet. And, so their performance uh, was better on a crappy diet compared to mice on a, on a good diet. Good diet, whenever they wanted. <laughs> Whereas crappy diet, wow. eight hours. Yeah. Uh, so that was really surprising finding. It was so surprising that I had to do this experiment <laughs> three times. Yes. Three different uh, postdocs did them independently. And then uh, we have repeated the study. So we asked, okay, so if we take the fat and unhealthy mice who are already unhealthy and fat with many different risks for disease, put them on eight to 10 hours diet, then what happens? And we could reverse many of the conditions. That's very gratifying that it's both preventative and therapeutic. Then we asked um, other questions. Um, we know that we humans cannot live like controlled mice. We will have our own impulse and societal need to eat outside mm -hmm. a set window. Mm -hmm. So we did this experiment where the mice ate for nine hours uh, for five days. And then in the weekend, they were allowed to eat whenever they wanted. And so in the two days, they actually eat around the clock. They overeat. They eat more than the... Uh, on the weekends. On the weekends. Yeah. And still, these mice that did time restricted eating only for five days, they gained nearly 80 to 90% of all benefits of doing time restricted eating every single day. Wow. And that was also a very nice, surprising finding that essentially said that maybe in humans, people can do five to six days of timeless eating. It may still give some benefit. And of course, we tried different types of diet, high cholesterol diet, high fructose diet, mm -hmm. high sucrose diet. And in all diet types, uh, the mice on timeless eating do much better. We tried both male and female mice, young and old mice. So uh, a lot of mice have gone through this. Mm -hmm. and but the results are consistent. The results are always consistent that they uh, do pretty well when the mice are on time-restricted feed. Then we went back to humans, and then we realized, um, so we developed an app called My Circadian Clock. It's still mm -hmm. available for anyone to download and track their own food. And uh, initially, we recruited 150 non-shift workers who are not doing shift work, regular employees, they're not students. And we asked actually, when do people eat and how the eating time changes from one day to another? And um, what is the likelihood that a person would eat within X time window over a week or two weeks? So for example, I may eat from, I may have my breakfast at 6 a.m. today and then my dinner at 6 p.m. But tomorrow I may change and eat from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Day after tomorrow, mm -hmm. it may be noon to 8 p.m. So it happens from day to day. But then the question is, what is the likelihood that I'm going to eat within certain interval? And the likelihood is I may eat somewhere between say 6.30 to 8 p.m. That's my likelihood of eating. So that's what we examined. And what we found was nearly 50% of adults in the U.S. eat for 14 hours, 45 minutes or longer. So that means so basically 15 hours, 15 hours. Yeah. yeah. And only less than 10% of people consistently eat within 12 hours or less. So that means that a lot of people can actually benefit 
by paying attention to when they eat and restricting that to eight to 10 hours and maybe maximum 12 hours. If you're healthy, already healthy and are eating a healthy diet, maybe maximum 12 hours. So now we have done this study in many cohorts. And then in fact, there are 140 different clinical trials going on around the world. And mouse studies have instructed that time-restricted eating might uh, help different conditions. For example, pre-diabetes, maybe type 2 diabetes under supervision, mm -hmm. uh, high blood pressure, high LDL cholesterol. Um, it actually doesn't help to increase SDL cholesterol, either in mice or human. And reducing some body weight, um, particularly for people who are overweight or obese, but not too much weight loss. Um, and uh, chronic inflammation and many inflammatory diseases, um, even people have tried it with um, various hormonal conditions like PCOS. Um, there are also trials going on for even for multiple sclerosis. Um, and in mouse models, mice with Huntington disease or Alzheimer's disease, are also benefiting by reducing the disease severity, not by curing, but reducing the disease reducing severity. Reducing disease severity, yeah. yeah. So uh, these are some of the uh, stuff going on. But for shift worker, this is a huge challenge because the shift can change from day to day and from one week to another. And I think the challenge is twofold. One is many of the shifts were created without the knowledge of circadian rhythm and purely based on convenience. Mm -hmm. um, even I'm seeing within the same university, within the same medical school, different departments have different shift schedule for their residents and nurses. And how can that be? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Except when it was convenience of the department chair or chief resident or something happened. So one part of the problem is many of the shifts are not designed based on science, particularly when the shifts are changing within week. Uh, when people are asked to do morning shift and then maybe three days of morning shift and then one day of off or two days of off, and then they have to go back to night shift. That's that chaos. Is, that's chaos. That's very difficult. Yeah. But then there are some where the shift is very stable. For example, I mentioned the firefighters. The firefighters mm -hmm. are always on, most of them are on 24-hour shift. So they know that they have to show up at 8 a.m. and leave next day at 8 a.m. And in that case, they could adopt a 10 hours time restricted eating. And to our surprise, what we found is they mostly adopted a window that starts somewhere between 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. and then ends 10 hours later. And they could completely stay away from food at nighttime. Uh, but they did not report any adverse event. They, their response time was very similar and they felt more full of energy. And Surprisingly, they actually reported they slept better on off days when they're mm -hmm. off mm -hmm. than on those days they slept better. So now coming back to people are doing night shift work, uh, night shifts. Um, the challenge is how do you choose an eating window that Correct. Uh, helps yeah. both the night shift days and day, day shift or when you are off. Um, so we have this open app where people can actually say whether they're in night shift or day shift, and then they try to follow time distributing. Uh, what we find is for the morning shift worker, they're almost like day shift workers. So they can better manage their time window because they uh, 
although they're starting their morning shift, say one or two o'clock in the morning, they can delay their breakfast to six or seven in the morning and then eat for eight, nine or 10 hours. During the day, yeah. During the day. And the evening shift workers, they're also relatively okay because uh, they start somewhere, their shift is ending say around midnight or one o'clock, but they start eating uh, around two o'clock, 12, between 12 and two in the afternoon and they eat for eight to 10 hours. So their last meal is actually during the meal break uh, at their work. But once they get used to this idea of not eating after they come back, after they drive back home after midnight, mm -hmm. then they can mm -hmm. manage with it. And the only thing they do is sometimes they have a black coffee or black tea before they leave work so that they can stay awake during mm -hmm. the drive. But we also ask them, what we find is some people just want a, a hot drink. Doesn't have to be caffeine just to keep them awake. Because mm -hmm. if you drink coffee towards the end of your shift, it's very difficult to fall asleep after the shift. The biggest challenge is for night shift worker, particularly the 12 hours night shift worker. Um, many nurses and nursing assistants who um, start their job, say somewhere between seven and eight in the evening and stay for 12 hours. Uh, what we find is some of them, they kind of adopt the lifestyle of evening shift workers. So that means they start their uh, foods at three or four in the afternoon and then they finish their meals around midnight and then they have a small snack or a hot drink before they leave in the morning. And for them, the biggest challenge is how to sleep for six mm -hmm. to seven hours during daytime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is where modifying your house, uh, making sure that <laughs> your right. family right. members actually respect your time mm -hmm. to rest is very important. So. Uh, right now, we're trying to submit a proposal to do a systematic uh, randomized control trial on shift workers to see whether they can adopt a 10 hours time restricting. Uh, and then from our firefighter study, we have also learned that when the firefighters follow this for five to six days in a week, even though they have one or two, what you can say, days. cheat day, yeah. off cheat days, days. Yeah. Yeah. they can still get many of the benefits of time restricting. So that means those firefighters who were already overweight or obese, they could lose a little bit of weight. And those who had hypertension, they could significantly reduce their both systolic and diastolic blood pressure because we know that mm -hmm. diastole is difficult to reduce. And then those who are pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic with or without medications, they could uh, improve their uh, insulin resistance. So their HOMA IR value actually improved. And those with a higher level of LDL cholesterol or in an MR lipoprofile, if they had um, dangerously high level of VLDL or LDL particle numbers, particle size, those also improved. Um, and those who are healthy to begin with, they just maintain their health. Yeah. And yeah. surprisingly, what we found was this study was done during COVID time. <laughs> and the Mm -hmm. Firefighters in the time restricting group in the um, self um, report of SF36 questionnaire, which measures well, different aspects of feel. health, yeah. Yeah. Um, they reported that their mental resilience of brain health 
uh, were sustained during this time restricting uh, trial, whereas the during standard COVID. of care group, the control group actually saw a decline in their mental health uh, oh, during the study, yeah. which overlapped with the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's what uh, we're trying to see, whether we can get funding for a um, larger trial on people who do non 24 hour shift, like morning, evening or night shift. And hopefully we can get it on the way <laughs> and then see. Yeah, beautiful. Um, the challenge is whether it's feasible. And second is if they can do it, what are the health benefits? Yeah, you know, in, in wrapping up here, uh, I is it, do you feel confident enough to be able to say, you know, there's been so much focus on food and what you eat and and the quantities. Do you feel that the circadian lifestyle is at the root of a lot of the anxiety and depression and mental troubles that we're seeing? Is it is it sort of the base layer of things, you know, that everything else rests on, including these metabolic disorders, you know? Uh, do you, are you coming to that conclusion or are, are you at that conclusion? Yeah, I mean... If we just take sleep as a baseline, we know that um, if we don't sleep enough, then our brain cannot function. When we say our brain cannot function, it has many connotations. Mm -hmm. One is our brain cannot decide, uh, cannot take in the information, process the information, and make a decision and take action. So that's the definition of brain function. So all these aspects of brain functions are compromised and in a day, we make several decisions about how we interact with people, how we take people's comments, process it, and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when our brain is not sleeping enough, then that can lead to a lot of misunderstanding and tension and stress from interpersonal interaction. Um, the way we perceive things and the way we self-assess ourselves uh, is disrupted, so that can lead to depression, anxiety, and many other things. The second thing that we also make a lot of decisions about in throughout the day is about food. So we make more than a couple of hundred decisions about what to eat, how much mm -hmm. to eat, what combination to mm -hmm. eat, with whom to eat, whether to sit down and eat, whether to eat when I'm mm -hmm. on the computer, all that stuff. <laughs> and um, and people have shown that sleep-deprived brain actually makes wrong food choices. And we usually crave for um, calorie-dense food. So that's- I remember that. I know that all too well. We all do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in that way, circadian rhythm disruption may be predisposing us to engage in uh, unhealthy behavior, unhealthy lifestyle. And of course, since we did not know the link between circadian rhythm, sleep, and our behavior uh, for a very long time, we paid attention to how to improve quality, quantity, and of nutrition or sleep or physical activity without paying attention to timing. And conversely, what we're finding is in many of the time-restricted eating studies, we find that we don't understand why people who stick to a eight to ten hours time-restricted eating they actually and those who finish their last meal two to three hours before their habitual bedtime, they sleep much better. Their self-satisfaction with sleep goes up. And then in the morning, they're more energetic. So not so surprisingly, we also find that they make better food choices. 
So since through the app, we are collecting multiple days of data on that, what they eat, when they eat, how much they eat. Uh, we and other researchers uh, independently have found that people actually make better food choices. And in fact, if we think just, if we reflect on our lives, uh, our best meal, healthiest meal is actually the breakfast mm -hmm. because that's the meal on which most of us have complete control if you are eating at home. Mm -hmm. And then once you get out of the house, then we, we don't have much yeah, control. Yeah. 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 So that's one thing that we find. The second thing that we find is, uh, particularly in the firefighter study, we found that when they stop eating, say, at eight or nine in the evening or before that, then the alcohol intake also goes down. You know, alcohol consumption is a huge driver of many diseases. Yes. Although we kind of glamorize alcohol consumption and the alcohol consumption is going up every year. Um, timeless eating somehow helps us to reduce alcohol consumption. And when we talk to people, they say that, well, after timeless eating, they feel they cannot drink too much. It's not that they, they're not wanting, they realize that the body actually cannot. It's, it's sort of rejecting it. Yeah. It's rejecting it. They, they say, <laughs> I have this become a cheap debt. Yeah. They say, I have become a cheap debt. One drink is enough for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's and great. So these are some of the examples that we're finding. So that's why I'm more um, inclined these days to think that the circadian rhythm disruption, oh, sorry, what I say is there is a new circadian theory of health because we had germ theory of disease that drove mm -hmm. biomedical research for almost 100 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And now I say there is a circadian theory of health. That means uh, sustaining circadian rhythm alone or in combination of, with pharmacotherapy at the right time can prevent, manage, and accelerate cure from many chronic diseases. And second, uh, it can also increase our healthy lifespan. Mm -hmm. And then third, it can also extend reproductive lifespan because that's something that calorie restriction and many other interventions cannot do because um, they actually reduce the reproductive reduce. lifespan. Particularly for yeah. women. Yeah. And uh, new studies are finding that time restricted feeding, at least in rats, actually extend their reproductive lifespan. Hmm. So this is my <laughs> new. That's where it's heading in your in your view. Well, yeah. Uh, Sachin, I can't thank you enough for giving us so much of your precious time and for your enlightening the audience on such a crucial topic for their health. And I thank you for your extraordinary contributions to our common humanity. And I, I really mean that. It's really groundbreaking work that you and others are doing, but you've been a big part of leading the charge. And it's just been a real honor and a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for actually disseminating this wisdom through physicians and frontline healthcare workers because uh, they are the leaders in change yes. because once yes. they adopt this and they see themselves there is an impact positive health impact then uh, they can influence hundreds of thousands of their absolutely patients. absolutely yeah so, so thank you so much for doing this you very important uh, work yeah i can't thank you enough and uh, yeah. a lot of time but thank you so much this has been the resilient surgeon a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening.
If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.